There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we discuss criminal cases that involve some factor of abuse. Our goal is to spread awareness of abuse that could be taking place around any of us and encourage everyone to take responsibility and report if they see a child or an adult being abused. It was January 14, 2018, in Paris, California. Two young girls escaped out the window of a house. Afraid of what her captors might do when they found them, one of the girls returned, but the other kept running. She couldn't bear the thought of returning to the misery she had been planning to escape for over two years. She was carrying a cell phone that she had taken from the house, and when she was ready, dialed 911. Police arrived and they found a girl they assumed was only 10 years old. Later, they found out she was a 17-year-old victim of abuse. She showed them pictures of a home with terrible living conditions, and her captor and abuser were her own parents. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where I'm Rosie. And I'm Ryan. This is a special episode for us. It's our episode 26 which means we've been making this podcast for exactly six months now. Yeah. So <laughs> we want to thank everyone that has started listening to us talk about these stories in the past six months. Uh, we also want to give a shout out to our brand new patron, Kate Morse. Yay! Uh, yeah, it's really cool. She is actually a researcher for the Minds of Madness podcast, so... That's really cool that she likes our show enough to want to support it. So thank you, Kate. Thank you, Kate. And we're returning to the case that really lit our passion for covering these topics. The Turpin family. It was our first episode back when we had no idea what we were doing. So we're doing an updated and better version with our six months of experience under our belt. Because let's be honest, episode one is really bad. <laughs> really cringy to listen to now. And it's funny because the day before we released episode one, we really had no plans for or any inkling that we would ever start a podcast. <laughs> right. It was a Monday night, and it's the night that we always go to taco night. And we were driving and discussing the latest Generation Y episode. Um, it was the Lost Girls of Panama episode. And then we were talking about the Turpin family. And one of us, whom I don't really remember which, said, we should make a podcast and talk about it. We discussed names for the podcast and went through a few terrible names before we arrived at Voice of the Victim. It was hard to come up with our name. When we got home, I designed the cover art. And then the next morning, I got up and created the creepy Stranger Things inspired intro music. And we did all our research in one day and threw an episode together, which in hindsight was uh, not the best idea. But we've learned a lot in the last six months, and so we want to revisit this case and try to do it justice because it deserves the best we can possibly do, and it's a really sad and terrifying case. Before we dive in, I wanted to take a moment to talk about all the support I've gotten since I've done my episode and talked about my abuse. I was super skeptical about putting it out for everybody to hear. And the main reason why I was so skeptical is because it's not the worst story of abuse out there. Like, I really realized that there are so many other people that go through so many worse things than I did. And it was a little intimidating that 
my story wasn't as bad as other people's. And I was really worried I'd get put in my place by listeners. But the amount of emails that we've gotten being so positive and encouraging and thankful, it's been really inspiring. I think to a certain point, you don't realize how terrible it was. After we recorded that episode, Rosie was like emotionally wrecked for a couple of weeks. And so it really took a lot out of her. Yeah. But I just wanted to say thank you for the emails that we've gotten because I was blown away by how much support that we've gotten from it. Totally unexpected. So we should probably get to our story. All right. This story takes place at a nice home in a beautiful neighborhood in Paris, California. David and Louise Turpin live there with their 13 children. After the events we described in the intro, police arrived at this home after seeing the photos she had. The house was really nice looking, but they noticed it was a bit messy. When they entered the house, they found a shocking scene. They found 12 other children, siblings of the girl, and one of the siblings was shackled to a bed with chains, and the police had reason to suspect that two of the other children were also chained just before they had arrived. Yeah, it looked like they had been rushing to get these kids unchained, Mm -hmm. but they didn't get all of them loose before the police showed up. The police assumed that all 13 children were minors based on their appearance, but later they would find out that they ranged from age 2 all the way to 29. Even more shocking was that seven of them were legal adults. They were so malnourished that they looked like children. The mother, Louise Turpin, reportedly looked perplexed by the arrival of the police. She was unable to provide any logical or appropriate reason that the children would be restrained in the way that they were. But no, duh, there is no good reason to have one of your children shackled like a prisoner. That's ridiculous. And the 17-year-old girl, the police thought she was only 10. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine how emaciated you'd have to look to look seven years younger than you actually are? Right, especially at that age. Yeah, that's a huge gap where people grow a lot between 10 and 17. Puberty. The children were taken away to Riverside County Regional Medical Center for treatment. What kind of parents would provide these kinds of living conditions for their own kids? That's a good question. The father, David Allen Turpin, he seemed like a normal, intelligent guy growing up. He was a treasurer of the Bible Club and co-captain of the chess club and even part of the science club and acapella choir. So he was into a lot of extracurricular he activities. He really liked clubs. So he graduated from Virginia Tech in 1979 as a computer engineer. Louise Turpin seemed to have more of a troubled past. She had two sisters, Teresa and Elizabeth. Her sister, Teresa, spoke about the abuse that they all adored as children by a close family member, but they were told not to speak up about it. Their parents were very strict, They were devout Pentecostal Christians at the Princeton Church of God. Apparently, at this place, the followers speak in tongues and refuse alcohol. I think it's funny that a Christian group would refuse alcohol when, I mean, Jesus' first recorded miracle was turning water into wine. I kind of think maybe people who developed these certain offshoots of Christianity had maybe been hurt by alcohol in the past. I love that you're worried about this. Well, it's it's just an interesting detail that Christians would be, like, no alcohol. Teresa recalls that Louise was obedient in front of her parents, but behind their backs, not so much. Elizabeth remembers Louise protecting her as much as she could. When their parents would fight, Louise would hold her younger sister and cover her ears. 
Elizabeth always thought Louise would make the perfect mother. Louise actually met David at the Church of God. They began dating, and Louise's father was furious about it. We should also mention that David was 23 and Louise was only 16. Louise's mom, on the other hand, really liked David and his family. She saw them as really good Christians, and his family was really close to the Robinette family. Which was Louise's family. Thank you for that. But Louise's father, Pastor Wayne Robinette, had no idea that the mother liked David. She would help the two see each other behind his back. They dated for a year before they ran away from their families in 1985 and eloped. This really pissed off Louise's father, Pastor Wayne Robinette. So we talked a little bit about Louise and that she had experienced abuse in her past. But we want to talk a little bit more about that because that's kind of where our spotlight is on this show is mm-hmm. how abuse influences these kind of things. So we mentioned that Teresa and Louise had been sexually abused by a close family member and they were told never to speak of it. Well, this same person had been molesting their mother her whole life. Then this person turned his sight towards Louise and Teresa. He would slip their mother money to keep her quiet. And because she was desperate for money, she would go along with it. The two girls begged not to be molested by this man but she would tell them that she had to feed and clothe them and didn't know what she was going to do without the money. (sighs) The situation makes it a little more understandable as to why Louise's mother would secretly help her to date David. So Louise had a way to get out of this house and away from the abuse. I'm just speculating, but it could have been a twisted little way of Louise's mother trying to protect her, even though she wouldn't actually stop the abuse. She used could have been helping Louise escape from it. Mm -hmm. Once Louise married and moved out, the abuse continued for Teresa and Elizabeth. They'd be so scared in the nighttime that they'd hold hands and pray together because they were so ruined by the situation they were in. Teresa said, We just knew that this was the way it was because you're not supposed to talk, you know. You're just not supposed to talk. (sighs) That's so sad that things can be so taboo in family situations especially discouraging communication in a family can be so incredibly paralyzing to children that are suffering from abuse this is why i always try to stress the importance of keeping communication lines open in a household because these poor girls were silenced and they never got their justice they were basically forced to accept that this was normal treatment for a child mm-hmm Teresa stated that this abuse ruined her as a child, and she has no doubt that it ruined Louise as well. This is why we want so badly to help end this cycle of abuse. If Louise's mom would have helped put an end to the abuse of her daughters, maybe none of these 13 children would have been so terribly abused. But then we need to go back even further because the mother had been abused her whole life as well. I really wish they could reveal the identity of this jerk that was responsible for all this abuse because he's no doubt the root cause of this entire case. But Teresa said that he was a really wealthy man. So my guess is he probably somehow paid for his anonymity and took some kind of deal. But I don't know. It's just enraging that he's getting away with it at least in the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. But Teresa made a powerful statement. 
regardless of any of her past abuse. She said, Luis knew what she was doing was wrong, or she wouldn't have hid it for so long. So the newlyweds experimented with some different religions like Pentecostalism and the Quiverful Movement, which involved procreating as much as possible and abstaining from birth control and viewing children as a gift from God. Because what else do you do in your newlyweds? You look for a new religion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was the 80s. Well, so? I don't know. But this explains why they had so many children. It's kind of ironic, though, for the way they turned out. It didn't seem like they viewed their children as a gift. Mm -mm. So they bought a house in Fort Worth, Texas, and they had their first child three years into the marriage. And they really began to start slipping under the radar and distance themselves from the rest of the family. Uh, In the early 90s, they had their second child, and to outsiders, it looked like they were starting to live the good life. They always had nice cars and a nice home, and to Louisa's sister, Teresa, she said they were the most perfect family she'd ever seen. At least that's how they appeared on the outside. David was earning a six-figure income working as an engineer for an aerospace company called Lockheed Martin. Do you want to talk about when uh, Louise's sister came to visit? Yeah. So after their fourth child was born, Louise's sister, Elizabeth, moved in with them for the summer during her college. This is quite a full house for a new family. Four kids and a guest. Elizabeth began to notice strange behavior. They were so strict on the oldest daughter that she needed permission to come out of her room. The children were not allowed to speak to Elizabeth. She also said that when the oldest daughter was brought out of her room to eat, she had to make some kind of eye contact with her mom, and then her mom would make some gesture giving her permission to eat. It was almost like their own secret language. So clearly there's some kind of issue here. If the oldest daughter needs permission, not only to come out of her room, but also to begin eating dinner... Mm -hmm. There's some strange control issues going on. While she lived with the Turpins, Elizabeth wasn't allowed to make phone calls, to have people over, or even tell anyone where she lived. She was only allowed to leave for work. I'm sorry, but if she's in college, I understand that she's living in their house and needs to have some ground rules, but restricting her from being able to leave the house or make calls is way beyond David and Louise's rights and responsibilities. They're not her parents, and she's an adult at this point. But she didn't really know anyone in the area because her family was back where they had all come from in, was it West Virginia? Somewhere on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And now they were in Texas, so it was hard for her to have anyone else to connect to anyway. Not many options. David had an interesting little hobby of flirting with Elizabeth and making her feel uncomfortable, and this drove her crazy. To get away from him, she would lock herself in the bathroom and take showers, but her sister Louise would pick the bathroom lock and let David in the bathroom. Then they would make Elizabeth get out of the shower so that David could watch her. So here's a whole new level of disgusting. And weird. Yeah, not only is David sexually harassing Elizabeth, but now Louise is helping her husband to see her own sister naked? What kind of place do you have to be in to do this? I I really want to reiterate that when Louisa and Elizabeth were younger, they were both abused, and Louise has, had been Elizabeth's protector in the past, but now she had turned on her, so it's kind of crazy. 
and sad for Elizabeth. It's crazy that she's picking the lock. I just, it's your sister. I know. I mean, it's, you know, it's like, it's another woman, but it's your sister. It's even weirder. Yuck. By the mid-90s, the Turpins started to face some money problems, but they did their best to hide it from the rest of the family. Teresa thought it could have been a pride issue because of all the Robinette kids. Louise was the only one who had made it out, and she had somewhat of a normal life. In 1998, Louise visited her family and told them that it was the last time that they would be seeing her. I kind of understand that logic. like The proud thing? Yeah, like when you're the one kid that was able to, you know, kind of have a normal life. It's a lot of pressure on you to always live up to your parents' expectations, and you never want to disappoint them, so you have a hard time telling them things that you know will disappoint them. Yeah, I get that. Just thought I'd throw that in there. (laughs) By 1999, they had seven children, and they homeschooled all the kids. Even though David earned a six-figure income, they were in so much debt that they had to abandon their house in Fort Worth and move to Rio Vista. The family living next door to the Turpins had noticed strange things. They were always trying to avoid their neighbors. One time, their neighbor Shelly tried to introduce herself to two of the kids. They replied in a strange way. The older girl said, Well, if you pay attention to what we say, maybe you could figure out what our names are. That is a weird thing to say. Yeah. Then the younger girl turned to her sister and said, No, don't, don't. And she looked scared like they were going to get in some kind of trouble. The same neighbor had noticed how white and pale the children's hands were. It almost looked like they were wearing gloves, but it was actually because the rest of them was so dirty. Their hands were the only clean part of their body. Shelley asked why, and they replied that, If you wash past the wrist, then you're just wasting water. This scared Shelley, and she kind of pulled back, but she never reported it. If you think about that for a moment, not only are these kids like crazy pale but the rest of their bodies are so dirty that it looks like they're wearing white gloves yeah that it it was said that they're only allowed to shower once or maybe twice a year if they were lucky but besides that all they could do was wash their hands up to their wrists because it would save water (sighs) once a year i mean can you imagine showering once a year i can't even go two days without a shower before i start flipping out i know And apparently they're so worried about wasting water, but I'm pretty sure I saw that David had bought himself like a new Mustang. I don't think they're worried about wasting water. I think that's just part of their freakiness. Their sick, twisted torture. Poor kids. I know. And I think uh, the oldest daughter, she went to public school as well. She went to public school? I thought they were she, she, She went to public school for a little while, but other kids and teachers were like complaining about her smell Um, and that she acted weird mm -hmm. and so they pulled her out Mm. but how sad is that that you won't even let your kid bathe to go out in public yeah after the arrest the kids said that if they washed past their wrists they were accused of playing in the water and got chained up shelly noticed that the family stopped going outside during the day and would only come out after dark the curtains would be all drawn the house would be lit up all night long This is so scary. They're forcing the kids into a nocturnal lifestyle, which means the kids are never getting sunlight. They're never getting that vitamin D that's so important to, like, happiness. 
and also never interacting with others, which is just important for having a sense of reality. You know, you never, you don't develop in the same way or understand society if you're never seeing other people. Right. Not having social interaction is the kind of things that leads to people that do really weird things Mm -hmm. and, you know, victimize other people. The neighbor said that they had a bunch of really nice new bikes, but they never got used and they just sat there outside and wore out and rotted. So the bikes, to me, is totally like a... A form of torture. I mean, it doesn't seem like an insane form of torture, but they are like, look at this oh, bike yeah. that you can't use. I didn't think of that. Oh, that reminds me. They would also put mm. really nice food out on the counter, but say you can't have any of that and basically torture them with food. And there were toys inside that were brand new too, wasn't there? I don't know. There Do, was, you I remember. remember. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the documentary. But the whole point is that they're... They're purposely using these brand new enticing things and purposely being like, no. Yeah. What a waste of money. Like, it just shows how cold hearted they were because they were willing to spend the money on the stuff, but they wouldn't use it to actually make their kids happy. They were using it as a form of torture and like planning that. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the parents started starving their children. They started locking the kids in separate rooms and feeding them on a schedule, but very little. People that lived near them said that they saw teenage boys digging in the trash, looking for food. Uh, Here's another missed opportunity. I mean, if you saw these kids digging in the trash, looking for food, wouldn't that set off alarm bells that something wasn't right in this house? In 2010, one of the girls actually ran and tried to escape. She flagged down a passing pickup truck and wanted to call the police. A lady picked her up and started talking to her. The girl didn't know her age or who the president was, things that the girl her age would normally know. And the girl was asking how to get a job, an apartment, and a car. Sadly, the woman took the girl back to her parents. (sighs) Yet another huge missed opportunity. This could have been the moment that saved this family, but... They ended up having to live like this for eight more years. Well, in the documentary, they said the reason why this lady brought her back to her parents most likely is because she thought she was mentally handicapped. Uh, And she didn't know how to explain to the lady what was happening. And she didn't even know what the police or the, you know, like cops, ambulance, she didn't know these words. She didn't know how to get help. Yeah. And when you think about it, all she knew is that she was miserable, but she didn't know that the way she was living wasn't normal. Because right. this is how she was raised. So, I mean, I see how this was, it was a huge missed opportunity. But if you were this lady and this super pale kid who doesn't know how to talk very well and doesn't know what she's trying to say, you know, you would assume, like, maybe she's mentally handicapped and she needs her parents. And she just, mm-hmm. I don't know, yeah. devil's advocate. Hind- hindsight's twenty twenty, And, like, if you were able to put this event right alongside what the neighbor had been seeing Mm -hmm. for all those months, then it would have clicked. But when you're just getting these fragments, you're not seeing the whole picture, which is really sad. Yeah, so we see all the puzzle pieces. She only got one. Yeah. Over time, they had seven more kids. That means they eventually had 13 children. Louise seemed to be obsessed with the early stages of motherhood. They didn't seem to want their children to ever grow up. One of the people in the documentary uh, about this case speculated on this. 
the Turpins were obsessed with Disneyland and Neverland, like they took their kids there, and that would be a, an expensive trip, but he felt that possibly the Turpins didn't feed their kids because they wanted to stunt their growth on purpose and keep them small, and this is his speculation, but possibly mm-hmm. wanting to create their own Neverland of never letting their kids grow up. I mean, Rosie and I love Disney. We love Disney. Yeah, tease us if you want to. That's okay. But this is just sickening. That It's hard to even say because I don't want anything Disney to be drinking. I know, because you love Peter Pan and you love the idea of staying young, but mm-hmm. everyone has to grow up and forcing your kids not to eat like this. Right. I mean, even if this isn't their logic or their reasoning, it's terrifying. (sighs) Well, eventually David lost his job at Lockheed Martin, and they were still in a lot of debt. They weren't able to pay their mortgage anymore, and they disappeared in the middle of the night. The neighbors had noticed they just took off and disappeared, so they walked into the house and found disgusting things on their property. They found feces and trash throughout the home. They also found beds with ropes tied to them. Uh, this is this shows just how long this abuse had been going on. I mean, they had been tying their kids to the bed even before they moved to Paris, California. So, I mean, how long do you think it was the full 29 years? Because their oldest daughter was 29 years old when they found oh, so these kids. That's such a long time. I don't know, but what I do know freaks me out. They found several dead cats and dogs in a trailer and large piles of garbage around the property. These poor kids had to live in these horrible conditions, and the people that found this crap never reported their findings to any authorities. I mean, I get that. They probably just assumed they were really messy people. But this probably would have been another good opportunity to raise suspicion of this family. I mean, the ropes on the bed are a little overboard. And what's up with the dead animals? I are know. these Were these pets that they just stopped feeding and the poor kids had to deal with their pets starving? I mean, I'm well, going in the worst case. If they didn't feed but. the kids, why would they feed the pets? But it's just like, what if that's psychological abuse of, here's your dog, but he's only going to live for a few weeks. Cause well, that fits in with the other does. psychological torture. That just makes me sick. But, I mean, we keep talking about missed opportunities, but it's so sad because if every single one of these things would have been reported, you would hope that maybe the police would have been able to put the picture together. Mm-hmm. But since nothing was reported, nothing, no progress was ever made towards helping these kids. So it doesn't hurt to report someone, have them just be vetted and get it over with. Even if they're innocent, That's it's a lot better for them to just be checked on than for abuse to continue for another 29 years. Yeah. Um, One of these people, one of the neighbors, also said that they saw a lot of scratches on the backs of doors and dried blood in the carpet. The Turpins appeared to be normal to people who interacted with the family, like the bankruptcy lawyer. He didn't see anything weird with them. But Teresa said in an interview that she tried for decades to talk to her nieces and nephews, but the parents would not let her get through to them. 
So it seems that they were doing their best to cut the children off from society, probably trying to avoid letting the truth out about the way these poor children were living. Another interesting thing is that the parents would get their vows renewed every 10 years or so, and they went to the same place over and over. It was none other than the Elvis Chapel. In Las Vegas. And the Elvis impersonator thought it was very strange that all the kids were so pale and so, so skinny. So there was one guy who noticed something. But again, he never reported it or said anything because just being pale and skinny really isn't enough to go off of. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Like, we put all these little pieces together now and it's like, yeah, of course there's a problem. But no one had all of these little tidbits of evidence in one place. So the problem kept going on until mm-hmm. the girl was able to escape. You can find the videos of the Elvis impersonator marriage renewal on YouTube. And it is weird. The whole thing is weird. Yeah, like the kids all just standing around watching. Yeah. Like really. And matching dresses. And and they just seemed the scared to move or do anything. Well, they were like singing Elvis songs too with the guy. So remember in 2018, the oldest daughter was 29. So this nightmare lasted almost three whole decades for her. We know David and Louise had been really religious and straight-laced. They didn't really drink much, they didn't smoke, and they didn't do drugs. But according to Teresa, around 2008, David and Louise started dabbling with a completely different lifestyle. Louise told Teresa it was time for them to sow their wild oats. Yeah, so I had to look this up. Sowing wild oats... It's an interesting phrase coined in the 1500s, basically meaning doing reckless and frivolous things with your time. Like, wild oats are actually a weed that look a lot like good oats, and if you sow them together with the good oats, it's really difficult to separate the two and get the good oats without the wild oats getting mixed in. So this is why people use this phrase to compare it to basically living like there's no tomorrow. Wow. I just thought that was an interesting... (laughs) like I was just watching a cooking show. But I, I think little <laughs> interesting facts are... Interesting? Are are. Interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting. I know. <laughs> we would like your comments on what you think of my interesting <laughs> little facts. And if you hate them, I'll stop doing them. Are you sowing your wild oats? Let us know. If you are, you should send your story to Go Postal Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. A little promo for them. Anyway, David and Louise apparently started getting into a real partying phase. David had taken Louise to meet up with a man that they'd never met before. David waited in the car while Louise had sex with the man, and they filmed it for David to watch later. Then exactly a year later, to the day, David took her back to the exact same hotel room to sleep with her himself. Louise posted pictures on MySpace that this man had taken of her in a one-piece lingerie number. And somehow, Louise's mom saw the pictures and got really upset over them. I find this really interesting because this woman allowed herself and her daughters to be sexually abused for so long, but she got upset with her daughter for this little stupid thing. I mean, I'm not going to lie, it's a strange thing to do, but at least it's legal. Getting paid to let a man touch your underage daughters is not only a terrible pedophilia situation, but it's prostitution of a child hidden under a cloak. 
In my opinion, if their mother was really getting paid off to let a creepy old jerk touch her daughters, she has no leg to stand on to be upset with anything Louise was doing legally. Yeah, every mom would be mad if they saw naked pictures of their kid online, though. And there's the fact that her mom was also a victim in this situation, but Doesn't seem you fair. can't say anything. In 2016, their mom died at age 66. And Louise still had so much resentment for her mother that she didn't even attend her funeral. She talked to her half-brother, Billy Lambert, and said that she did feel bad for not showing up to the funeral, but she just didn't show up. I don't know if I can personally blame her. The only thought I have is that her mom was also a victim of sexual assault and manipulation. Her husband had divorced her, and she probably really felt bad about what she put her kids through. Who knows how far gone she was after being abused herself. But on the other hand, she was a mother, and she should have done her best to protect her daughters. You know? Mm -hmm. So, even though I think Louise probably should have gone to the funeral, I can't hold that against her. Because I get it through both sides. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. You may wonder why the kids didn't try to escape from this terrible house sooner. It's so sad, but this is how they had been raised their entire lives. They could have thought that this was normal because this is what their mom and dad presented to them as a way of life. These children definitely seem to have Stockholm Syndrome from years of captivity since birth. Yeah, and they also had a tight bond with each other. Uh, They had their own little band of support in their siblings and they had grown comfortable with the abuse. But not all of them were comfortable with it. The 17-year-old girl we talked about in the intro had been planning for two years how she was going to make her escape. Yeah, so the girl from the intro was actually on the phone with the 911 operator for 20 minutes. And unfortunately, we don't have the recording of the call because the trial is still pending. But in the call, she had said, my parents are abusive. They abuse us. And my two little sisters right now are chained up. Hmm. I think it's really cool she had the determination to help her sisters and actually risk getting in trouble to do it. She was kind of a hero. Is this the one who was doing her own YouTube videos, like singing and stuff? Yeah. Okay. So I don't. those videos are probably still on YouTube, right? I I think they censored and took them down. Oh, you do? Because they're technically evidence in a Mm. trial right now. Because you can see around her, she's singing in a Well, yeah, on on the documentary and the news, they showed clips of the video with her face blurred out. Uh Because all the children's identities are being concealed right now. Right. When the 911 operator asked about medications, she didn't even know what medication was. Then they asked her about school, and she said, a fake school is set up. I haven't even finished first grade, and I'm 17. Yikes. I wonder why they were asking about medications. Um, She asked if there were any medications in the house. Oh. And she was like, I don't know what medication is. Oh. So, yeah. David and Louise were arrested the day the police found the house on suspicion of child endangerment and torture. The bail was set at $9 million each. That's (sighs) a lot. In their search, police recovered hundreds of journals written by the children which will hopefully provide insight to what was really happening in the house. 
On January 18th of this year, the couple were charged with 12 counts of torture and false imprisonment, 7 counts of abuse on a dependent adult, and 6 counts of child abuse. Doesn't this seem a little low? Well, they don't want to throw everything at them right away. Uh. I mean, they can always press more charges, mm-hmm. but they can only be tried with each charge once, so True. Okay. they want to make sure they set up their case, but... David also got a charge for a lewd act on a child under 14. So all these charges together could lead to 94 years in prison. But of course, they pled not guilty. Why? I don't know. (laughs) But the prosecution requested a restraining order on the Turpin parents on behalf of the children, forbidding contact with their children for three years, and the judge accepted. Thank goodness. So this entails staying at least 100 yards away physically and no contact through social media or electronic means. A month later, on February 23rd, three more charges of child abuse were filed against the couple and one felony assault charge against Louise. When the police searched the house, they found hundreds of handwritten journals that the kids had made. These journals haven't been released yet because the trial is still ongoing. But when it's all over... If more info is released, we're going to make a part two of this episode where we talk more about these poor children and what they went through. On June 21st, uh, 2018, the Riverside County Superior Court Judge Bernard Schwartz ruled that the Turpin parents would face trial for child abuse, false imprisonment, and torture against their children. The date hasn't been set yet, but the couple faced 50 charges, including several counts of torture, false imprisonment, and child abuse. And despite the efforts of defense attorneys to dismiss most of the charges, the judge only dropped one child endangerment charge involving the Turpin's youngest two-year-old child due to a lack of evidence that the toddler had ever been abused. Hmm. But, ugh. I would hate to be their defense attorney. Yeah, me too. Because there's no doubt that they did all this crap. Mm-hmm. I don't know how defense attorneys work for these for people like this, and I'd be really interested in talking to one someday. And like, mm-hmm. like how do you compartmentalize and work with these kind of people? Yeah, it's such a sad story. After all the children were found, most of them were separated in different group homes or in foster homes, so their chances of normalcy are pretty low especially since the only relationships they've known for their whole lives are now split apart. (sighs) I can't imagine the damage that growing up in this situation could cause you. The oldest girl was 29. She's older than me, and she spent her whole life being abused and imprisoned. And even if you do get back on your feet, there's got to be PTSD that comes up in the future. I wish someone would have said something sooner. I know they're technically innocent until proven guilty, but I don't know how the parents could plead not guilty to this. That's That part is ridiculous to me. I would say if you notice suspicious activity in a house with children, or if you were treated inappropriately by a family member, please find someone that you trust to confide in. And don't sweep it under the rug. Just speak up. The neighbors who came across the aftermath didn't report to the authorities, like we said earlier. And I think it's also really important more than the victim speaking up, is the people surrounding the situation that notice that things aren't right, but they still don't say anything. After finding all those different things that the Turpins left behind, like the feces and the scratches on the doors and the dried blood on the carpet. It's sad because socially, we naturally want to see the best in people and not suspect people without a reasonable cause. 
but a house full of children living on a property full of dead animals, trash, and crap inside the house, it should probably be reported, and I'm hoping that we can all take this story and learn from it. So, we'll say it again, we've said it before, but if you see something, say something. Help protect the hopeless and helpless children out there. It's kind of heartbreaking to see, but the girl who escaped posted videos prior to her escape of her singing original songs on YouTube, like Rosie mentioned earlier, and you see partially the living conditions in the house. But what's more sad is just seeing her trying to cope with what she was dealing with through her music. So I I don't know if they're still up. I don't think they are. But the news coverage with her identity concealed shows samples of her music. And you should definitely check it out if your heart can handle it. You really see her fragile emotional state. And maybe I'll try to find some clips of her singing and put it it into the end of this podcast. You can put her video on Instagram if we can find it. Yeah, that or at least, like, the audio of her singing in this episode. So thank you for listening to the Voice of the Victim podcast this week. Our hearts really go out to the Turpin kids, and Mm -hmm. we hope that they're able to have some kind of normal life in the future and be able to recover from it. We know it's going to be really difficult. and Yeah, hopefully at least the younger ones will be able to grow up (laughs) normalcy. I don't know. Yeah. Or the one that's 29, I can't imagine. I know, her entire life has been stolen from her. Mm-hmm. So sad. Um, all we can really do is learn from it. and Hopefully these evil, evil, nasty people will get justice served to them. Yeah, absolutely. And like Rosie already said, if, if you see anything weird or a child that's... That could be in a bad situation. There's nothing wrong with with their parents being vetted and at least making sure there's nothing bad going on. Go follow us on all the stupid sites. Instagram <laughs> at VOV Podcast <laughs> and Twitter at VOV Pod. Mm-hmm. And email us at VOVpodcast at gmail.com if you want to share your personal story with us. Check out our Patreon page. Yeah, if you really love our show, you can help support us on Patreon. Thanks again for listening to the Voice of the Victim podcast this week, and we'll talk to you next week.